Mikkel, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I'm excellent. How are you, Bill? I'm doing great. Uh, Mikkel and I are great friends, and she's got a fantastic story. And uh, so for the listeners, I think you're really going to enjoy a chance for uh, you to hear me and a good friend of mine just kind of talking and and sharing, I think, what is a really interesting uh, life experience uh, here on the podcast today. Uh, Mikkel, I wonder if you just might start us off and give us kind of a brief intro about yourself, just to give the listener kind of a, a feel for who you are. Uh, so my name's Mikkel, like Bill said. Uh, I'm a nurse practitioner, and I've done that for the last four and a half years or so. Before that, I worked as a nurse for about 10 years. Um, I have four children. And my story is that after 19 years of being married, I came out as gay. And so this last year and a half or so, it's been an adventure of trying to figure out who I am in that realm and outside of Mormonism and my place, you know, in this world. Yeah. And the world, we've talked about this so many times, Mikkel, the world is tough enough on this issue. And and yes, we're getting better. And yes, I think we're finally getting to a place where people who are LGBT can uh, at least have access to the tools and resources to start to work through some of these things. But the world is rough enough. But Mormonism is a, is a whole nother layer, maybe another 10 layers on top of that. And so I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm excited, but I also recognize there's a lot of trauma and hurt in these stories. Um, but I'm excited to to, to talk about this story so that people who are out there who are LGBT or who have a loved one, uh, that they might begin to sense kind of the wrestle that's going on in the background and the compassion and empathy understanding uh, that we need to have. And I, and I think you're, you're going to be such a good example for this just because of our friendship and the, the easiness of kind of talking about these things that we've, that you and I have kind of just hashed out with our, with our group of friends uh, over the last year. Yeah. And uh, I wonder maybe if you can start us off. Let's start to go back into childhood. And you can kind of share whatever you want to from your childhood. But I, I, what I'm trying to pull out here is to have a conversation about the what, what who you are, like who you are in your being, uh, and you're recognizing that, obviously, later childhood, mm-hmm. uh, but also early childhood, how your culture whether it's your family culture, whether it's your extended family culture, whether it's your whether it's your religious system, how all of those things are impacting you, and then just any kind of childhood memories that you that you think are important, so that the listener gets to know you better. Sure. So you know, my my parents um, were married fairly young. They both came from pretty religious families. I know that my dad, as a teenager, was considered wild. And um, he would always tell us as kids the story of his bishop kind of helping put him back on the on the right path. And he ended up going on a mission. And I know my parents met shortly after my dad returned home from his mission. And um, growing up, I remember up until about I was eight years old that things were good. Um, I remember being really happy. Um, my parents, for the most part, got along pretty well. They they had their issues um, but after after I was eight, um, one thing that, that happened significantly is we were in a really bad car accident, and my dad sustained some pretty severe head trauma. 
And after the accident, he had short-term memory loss and um, some other issues that made him, it changed him. He be, he became a different person. And, and along with, I think, some factors that influenced him when he grew up, he grew up in a very strict household. My grandpa was sometimes abusive. And then, you know, my dad joined the military. And I think a combination of a, of a variety of different factors um, then played a role in how he parented. And like I said, after the car accident, he became a different person. He became very, very strict. Um, and again, this is, this is my story. And so my perception may not be what my siblings experienced or what my parents experienced, but to me as a child, he became abusive, um, verbally and sometimes physically. And along with, with going to church, we just, I learned to not talk about my feelings, to always do what I was told, and um, that love needed to be earned. I had to be good enough, and I had to do enough right in order for my parents to love me. And so growing up, that's that's what I strove for. You know, I, I always got good grades. I did whatever I could to make sure my, my parents and my siblings were happy. Um, I very rarely did anything that I wasn't supposed to. And when I did do something minor that I wasn't supposed to, I felt intense guilt. Um, I knew that I was different when I was about 11 or 12. I became really attached to a friend and we, we experimented. We, we did some things and back then, I didn't have the vocabulary to really identify what those feelings were or what I was experiencing. I just felt bad. I felt guilty about it. And um, so, of course, I never talked about it. But when I was 12, 13, we moved. And so I lost contact with that friend. And because of the intense guilt that I felt from the things that we had done, I never talked about it and just kind of stuffed that inside. Well, well so... I'll probably interrupt you lots of times just to kind of sure. talk about some of the things that, uh, that you and I have kind of laid out to kind of conversate about. So your parents' marriage, I want to I want to hit on this because your dad has this accident, and in some ways, um, when we have some traumatic event in our life, and as you point out, he was different after that. Like to some extent, and I don't want to say like it's not our fault because in reality, like. It is and it isn't, right? Like some things we, we can work on being better than what we are, but we also come to life or come to these experiences or get traumatized by these experiences and we become something else. And and it's not always easy to say like, let's just make it all this person's fault or not that person's fault. So I, I appreciate you kind of stepping in and saying like, this is my experience and other people in my family might have a different experience and to grant like this accident happened. But I wonder if you might talk for a moment about your parents' marriage. and Because as a kid, I remember my parents in their marriage and what it looked like. And my parents are still married. Mm -hmm. And I think they have a good marriage. But there were lots of traumatic incidents in my childhood. Like it was good 95% of the time. And the other 5% was hell. And uh, and I wonder maybe if you could just share some of your your thoughts on like what kind of marriage your parents had and... What were some of the tools and things that maybe they used or that you picked up on? So they, I don't think that they had a healthy marriage at all. Um, my parents fought almost constantly. I remember just 
lots and lots of arguments. There were, there were lots of nights where I just laid in bed, you know, praying that they would stop fighting and, and constantly worrying about whether or not they were going to get divorced or if they were going to stay together. Um, along with that, my parents had a lot of financial problems. And so money was always an issue. We didn't grow up with much. Uh, we received a lot of assistance from the church at various times. And, um, I, I never, I can't say never. There's maybe a handful of times that I saw my parents be affectionate towards one another. And so growing up in, in that environment made, made it difficult in a lot of relationships. It was difficult for me to maintain friends. It was difficult to maintain good relationships with my, my siblings because all I grew up with was fighting, yelling, uh, name calling, you know, those kinds of things. Um, my parents ended up getting divorced when I was in my 20s, and it was a horrible, ugly, awful divorce. And uh, just nothing nothing was healthy. My parents would talk badly about each other. Um, there's one instance that I remember very vividly when I was in high school. My mom would say, um, don't marry for love, marry for money. And um, that really that really affected me. Um, I... I you know, as a as a youth growing up in the church, that's the ideal that you want. You want to find a spouse that can take care of you, but is also, you know, you you check all the boxes. They are a returned missionary. They love God. They have an education. They treat you well. You know, all of those things. And I had no example in my home of what that would look like. Um, I did have an aunt, my dad's sister, who was a really good example and who I often looked to 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 give me a picture of what I wanted in my life. Um, you know, she grew up in the same household as my dad, but chose to live life much differently. She always tried to look for the positive, um, tried to see the good in people. She was understanding and forgiving um, just all of the things that I wanted my parents to be but they they either didn't have the tools to be able to do that or didn't have the desire or maybe a little bit of both. Um, and so I would have conversations with her, particularly when I was in high school, and she would help me sort through things and try and see the good that was still in the world, even though in my own little world, I didn't have much good. Yeah. So as we move into kind of now these, these teenage years and you, and you talk about beginning to recognize like, Oh, I'm different. Uh, and, and then maybe kind of playing off of, uh, talking about like growing up in the church and what church looked like for you, what your thoughts and feelings maybe were about the church and what kind of things it was, it was, um, handing to you that you were now incorporating. Maybe talk a little bit about your Mormon experience. Yeah, so as I mentioned, my, my parents were both very religious, and so we, we went to church all the time. Um, and church church was interesting, partly because we moved around pretty frequently. You know, I, I remember starting Young Women's when I was 12 and being super excited about it. Um, I went to one mutual activity. I had an older brother, and so he was there uh, with us, and I came home, and he, I'm not sure. I don't remember the experience 
you know, as far as the activity, but we came home and my brother said something to my parents and, um, I got, I got in trouble. My dad said that I had been too flirty and I, that, that really affected me. And so I started learning to just shove my feelings and my emotions and, and just sit against the wall and kind of watch other people. Um, and so Part of that, part of um, my experience was I, I knew that I was different, but I didn't exactly know why um, I wanted to be like everybody else. But no matter how hard I tried, I, I couldn't. And um, I learned from my parents that if you were different, that was bad. My dad and, and my mom would often belittle or talk badly about people who were different, whether that was you had a different hair color or you didn't look like you know, they wanted you to look. Um, and so part of that, along with the things that I was taught at church, I don't remember being specifically told in church that gay was bad um, because I don't think it was ever talked about. As far as I can remember in my early teen years, and um, it just was, there was a lot of discussion about what um, marriage should look like, you know, you should marry a man and you have children and you get married in the temple and all of these, these ideals that everybody else thought was, was perfect or that you, that you should have. And so, um, I was often made fun of in church because again, my family didn't have a lot of money. And so I wore hand-me-downs and oftentimes they ended up being hand-me-downs from other members of the ward and so I would go to church and people, you know, young women would see that I was wearing their dress from last year or the dress that they had just given away. And so I, I, I just learned to not be seen, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, you mentioned your parents were religious. And when you said that, automatically my brain goes to this dichotomy, like there's religious and then there's spiritual and religious if I understand you right, and I think I do, is that your your parents outwardly did the Mormon thing the Mormon way, but this idea of spirituals, like what's going on inside, um, can you maybe talk for a moment? Like, in, is your family having prayers? Is it is there a sincerity to? And I don't mean this as any way of mocking. Like, I can look at how we practice Mormonism early in our, my life um, as a young adult. And I can sense that we were religious, and yet we weren't very spiritual. Um, maybe talk about some of the sincerity of that, or was it kind of just outward practice, or maybe kind of looking back what your thoughts were on, on the spirituality of your home? So we often had family prayer, uh, but their sporadic scripture study, my parents I remember a few occasions of them going to the temple. Most of the time it was my mom going to the temple by herself. Um, and there was, there was talk about spiritual things, but it was often in the sense that my dad was the one having the spiritual experiences. You know, he would, he would tell us stories of my, you know, my dad did construction work. He often owned his own business and, and occasionally worked for other companies doing home remodeling and, and those types of things. And I remember vividly a couple of experiences where my dad would get injured at work and it would be blamed on the adversary trying to thwart my dad's earthly mission. 
And um, there, there was often talk of my dad, like I said, having experience, a spiritual experience where he had some type of insight or um, some type of revelation. And it would, you know, we'd, we just believed him um, and, and often took his word as gold because he, there was just this sense in my home that, you know, my dad was the authority and he knew, he knew what was right. And, and he was very, um, well-versed in, in the book of Mormon. And, um, he had his own thoughts and ideas about, you know, how dinosaurs came to be and why they were no, were no longer on the earth and, you know, where the book of Mormon people lived and, and those types of things. And so, Partly because my dad, because he was so strict, we, I never dared question his authority. And so we, we just believed, blindly believed the things that he, he said. And so I don't, I don't think that there was much spirituality in the home in the sense that we, you know, we shared those experiences or, or, um, talked about our own spiritual experiences, but there was this expectation that, that we gained our own testimony and that we believed everything that the prophet said. I remember being about 17 years old. And, um, at that time we were living in Pennsylvania and we had early morning seminary and my mom was our early morning seminary teacher. That was her calling. And so we would, we would try to have that regularly, and because we lived in a, in a small community, it was oftentimes myself, my brother, my mom, and maybe one other, one other child. Uh, but I remember my dad saying to me, do you have a testimony? And I, I don't think that I did in the sense that he, he wanted me to. And so I, I was an avid reader. I loved to read, especially like mystery books. And my dad said, if you read the Book of Mormon with the same intensity that you read your mystery novels, you might actually have a testimony of, of the gospel. And I remember how much that affected me. It, it almost wounded me. I felt offended that, that, you know, I was doing all the things that I'd been asked to do. I was going to church. I was going to seminary. Um, I wasn't I wasn't drinking. I wasn't doing drugs. I wasn't, you know, partying. I wasn't doing any of those things. And so um, I thought to myself, you know, he's right. Maybe I, maybe I should get a testimony. And I remember opening my Book of Mormon and, and telling myself, let's just pretend this is the, some great adventure. This is a book that I've never read before. And it's, it's going to be amazing. And I remember just really focusing and kind of buckling down and reading the Book of Mormon. And at that time, I felt peace. I felt this sense of, um, th I don't know, this sense that, that it was true and that it had to be real. And, and if I looked at it in the same way that I did some of my other books, it was kind of fascinating to have this people who lived, you know, hundreds of years ago who had wars and various experiences. And so at that time, you know, I, I had what I would call a testimony. And um, in in order to please my parents, and especially my dad, I started going on splits with the sister missionaries and, and trying to convert my friends. Um, I ran track. And because 
my brother and I were pretty much the only Mormons in our school. People were very intrigued by intrigued by us. They had heard a lot of things about Mormonism. And so it became my mission at that time to to be the best Mormon I could be so that I was an example to, you know, the whole school. And I, I want to, so I want to ask something here. So as you're talking about your interactions with your father, and, and I know your story well enough, you know, away from this conversation to know as you're sharing these things, some of these things are coming up for me, which are that you felt a lot of shame, um, that you didn't feel like you measured up, that you're always trying to be what your dad wants you to be so that he looks at you with acceptance. And, and, and so I sense that, and I want you to speak to that for a moment, but I also want to then have you go into this idea that you did this thing. You read the Book of Mormon. You get this testimony. You did what he had set as this high bar. And so I'm, I'm led wondering, like, do you go to him? Do you share that you've read it? Do you share that you've got a testimony? And does he, does he give you one of these moments of acceptance and validation? Or does he simply add something else to the list now that, that you're back to trying to measure up again? Um, any thoughts there on kind of that dynamic? So I don't, I, I don't think that I shared with him outwardly, you know, verbalizing because there wasn't a lot of conversation in our home about, about anything. And so I just knew that no matter what, there was always going to be another bar. Um, no matter what I did, there was always something else that was expected of me. And no matter what I did, it was never, it was never just enough to have completed that, that task or that, um, that level. Um, and so I, I never, you know, I grew up never feeling like I was good enough, um, no matter what I did. What, what, so what's that like? What's that like living? So I'm going to relate it this way. And I, and I, I probably do this too much. I think all of us as interviewers in Mormonism do this where we kind of hijack the story and tell our story too. <laughs> but I, I had parents who loved me and didn't place a lot of um, expectation. I mean, like they wanted me to do well and they encouraged me to do well, but it's very different from the story you're telling. I, I never felt like I wasn't measuring up. I mean, yeah, there's always moments. I think we all have those, but I didn't live in that space. And so I'm trying to feel, I'm trying to have empathy. I'm trying to imagine. Uh, and the only way I'm coming to it is you're, you're bringing up shadows for me about how I treated my children as a young parent um, and how I was in some ways kind of like your dad. And, but I can't, I can't feel it as the kid. Um, and, and so I'm wondering maybe if you could speak for a moment what it's like to live in a home where you're really good, but you don't ever feel like you're good enough. And, and that, that hurts. And I, I wonder maybe if you could speak about that. Uh, it was, it was extremely difficult. Um, there were there were times in my younger teen years. I'm sorry, it's, it makes me emotional. There were times in my younger teen years when I just I I wanted to not exist anymore. Um, I remember one time where I was I was probably 12 or 13 years old, and again, kind of related to the experience that I had with my friend, and and just never feeling like I was good enough. Um, I remember vividly praying that God would just take me just 
just cause an accident or just end my life somehow just take me out of this I couldn't do it and it just it just drove me to constantly try and be better it didn't matter what it was it just I needed to always be better um I mentioned before that I ran track and I was I was really good at it but even if I won the race there was something to critique. I didn't run it. You know, my time wasn't better than the last time or, um, I, I, my form wasn't perfect or I didn't get out of the blocks fast enough or something. There was always something that I could have done better. And, and so growing up it, it was difficult. Um, and so I, I, I tried to be perfect in everything in my homework, in, in, how I presented myself in just, just in everything. Um, when I was perfect, seems like it's just neutral though, right? Like perfect, perfect is the minimum you have to do just to be left alone. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. And it, it yeah. was hard because it wasn't just me. My, my other siblings felt that too. And we would have conversations about, you know, one, how do we, how do we get out of this? And two, how do we just keep surviving? How do we just keep coping? Um, I remember before my older brother went on his mission, he he had been given some silver spoons, and I'm not sure where he got them from. But he he called me into his bedroom, and he had this set of silver spoons, and he he said, Mikhail, I want you to take these, because if I don't come back from my mission then at least you have a little bit of money to be able to help you do something. Like you could sell them or, or, you know, figure out what to do with them. And so we were always, I think all of us kids were always, one, looking for a way to get out of, of our family situation, but two, also expecting the worst. Like maybe we weren't ever going to get out. Wow. Um yeah, and it's and it seems like your your conscious. So another thing is sometimes we, we as little as children, as as young, as adolescents, as young teenagers, we live in these frameworks, but we don't really gather that we li- that we're living in those frameworks. We don't really know that we're poor. We really don't know that we're never measuring up. But it seems like you're deeply cognizant that no matter what you do, it's not going to be good enough. Yeah, I I remember feeling that and thinking that a lot. Um, so I want to, I want to move into, as we move into kind of these later years, perhaps kind of high school and, but I want to go back for a moment. And so you have this friend, is this in Pennsylvania? No, this, you had this friend that you, this was in Utah. Okay. And her family so was around. Yeah, we did. Um, I was born in California. We moved to Hawaii when I was one then from Hawaii, we moved to um, Utah again, lived in Wyoming, Pennsylvania, all over. Wow. Uh, when I, as I've gone through my life and I've spoken to people, people who pretty much stayed in one place and people who moved around, for the folks who move around a lot, it seems like there's some consistencies in their experience, which 
which is kind of this never really having, again, not having the, not the chance to settle down in, in a physical location, but kind of a chance to settle down emotionally, a chance to kind of put your roots in. Um, maybe talk for a moment about just that process of always moving and always having to pick up everything and go somewhere else. Because for me, I mean, I spent my entire life in one city uh, up until three and a half years ago. Wow. And I'm curious what your thoughts are of, of what it's like to be in a family that moves all the time. It was hard, especially trying to make friends because there was this, there was this part of me that knew that we were going to be moving in a couple of years. And so in order to protect my, myself and my feelings from that loss, I prevented myself from forming deep friendships. And so, um, there was, there was this, this part of me that just always held back because I knew that we were going to be moving in a few years and I didn't want to experience losing friends. And, um, and so I, I didn't have very many friends. I, I don't remember, you know, aside from my one childhood friend that, that I shared some experiences with when I was, you know, 11, 12, 13, I don't remember many friends from elementary school. And then in, in middle, middle school, kind of junior high years, I had two friends that, that two or three friends that we, we hung out together. Um, but even them, I, I very, very rarely have talked to or kept in contact with. And then in high school, we moved when I was 15, the, towards the tail end of my 10th grade year. And so here I was moving to this small town where everybody had lived for years. You know, most of the people that lived there had lived there their whole lives. And so trying to form friends with people who already had groups of friends established, it was difficult. Um, and then being considered an outsider, if you will, you know, partly because I was new to that community and partly because of Mormonism, I just stood out. And, um, so even in high school, I had very few friends and, and my, my dad's sister lived in Nebraska and half of my senior year, the first half of my senior year, partly because I wanted to get out of my home so badly. Uh, I went and lived with her to help her with her kids. And, uh, just was basically a loner during that time. And then the rest of my senior year, I went back home and finished high school and I worked desperately to do whatever I could to get out. What was your relationship like with your siblings? Uh, you know, when I was, when I was young, we, we fought a lot. And then from the time I was probably 14, um, I did whatever I could to try and keep the peace. And so we, we did a lot of chores growing up. My dad believed in, in a strong work ethic and I think partly to keep us busy or distracted. I'm not really sure. We, we did a lot of work. We always had a garden, um, and, and a lot of household chores. And part of that was my mom was so depressed a lot of the time that she just couldn't function to try and, keep the household together. And so I remember a couple of times when, you know, my, my brother would be assigned to do the dishes and he would just fight with my younger sister. And so I would just step in and say, here, I'll do the dishes because the, the, I couldn't stand the fighting. I just wanted there to be some peace. And so I, I would oftentimes do everything. So you mentioned earlier 
your your dad kind of had his own brand of Mormonism in a way. Like he had his own ideas on how this went together or how that went together or where this was at or where that was at. So I, I had some of that as well. Um, my father-in-law it, it was also in construction. Not sure if that makes any kind of connection <laughs> to why this happens. But as I joined the church as a uh, as a teenager, as a 17-year-old, my father-in-law is giving me his Mormonism. And it also involves, you know, where dinosaurs come from and how old the earth is and Cain is Bigfoot. And some of the stuff is connected to Mormonism. Some of it is an embellishment on something Mormonism has already done. And some of it was just something never spoken of before. And I'm wondering maybe kind of, were you able to kind of say like, there's my dad's Mormonism and here's what the church teaches me? Or did it kind of all just kind of blend together? It kind of all just blended together. And I think part of it is because I never dared question my dad and I was taught to never question the prophet. And so I just, I just took everything at face value. I believed everything that they said. And, and I believed that my dad, not that he knew more than the prophet, but partly they, you know, they never, I, I never heard something that the prophet said that my dad would contradict, if that makes sense, that, that he would just reinforce it. Um, adding his own revelation, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, Your thoughts on God at this time. So whatever kind of uh, culture we grow up in within our family, mainly, but also even in a ward culture, if you have a really harsh bishop or um, really tough leaders in young women's, we tend to kind of make God whatever we have around us. Um, I'm curious whether whether God to you in your growing up years, whether he was this loving being who was always there ready to help you, or was he a judgmental God ready to punish any moment you didn't live up to what you were doing? Uh, I grew up terrified of God, um, partly because whenever my parents would experience severe financial difficulty, it would be, my dad would say, it's because he wasn't living righteously enough. And so I grew up, you know, afraid of God. I didn't think that he, he loved me. I felt like I was always being punished and, um, not only myself being punished, but he was punishing my family. And, um, I, I was terrified of him. I, I had this experience when I was in my late twenties where I almost drowned and, um, I'd been doing, you know, at that time I was married, I had children, I'd been, you know, callings in the church, I was doing everything on paper that I was supposed to be doing, and um, when I had this experience of nearly drowning, I didn't experience the the peace and the, the light at the end of the tunnel that a lot of people talk about. All I experienced was this overwhelming sadness and and fear and dark, and I thought, where where's God? You know, I'm doing everything that he's asked me to do. Where is he? And um, it was at that time that I really started to evaluate my perception of what God looked like. And I did a lot of reading and talked to um, other people and started to shift that a little bit. So you're in high school, you finish that up. Now you're an adult you you talk about how your home was so unhealthy that you and your siblings just want to get out and you want to just kind of get out into the real world and kind of put some of that behind you. Maybe talk about 
that transition, what is what does young adulthood look like for you, and and uh, what are some of the things that are going on uh, in your life then? So when I graduated high school, um, I decided to come back to Utah to go to school, partly because I was I was a potential track scholarship at Weber State University. And um, so I, it was, you know, far enough away from my family. I had some extended family that lived in Utah, so I, I had some resources if I ever needed anything. And and uh, when I was getting ready to leave, my dad begged me to stay. He wanted me to help him with his business, and he was, he was devastated that I wasn't going to stay. So I, I came to Utah to go to school, um, and I... It was, it was difficult. You know, my dad still tried to control every every aspect of things, even from a distance. He would call my dorm room at six o'clock in the morning and then at 10 o'clock at night to make sure that I that I was home, that I wasn't staying out too late. Um, he would say things like it. Uh, he would say, if you're going to play with fire, you're going to get burned, because there was one time that I had stayed out late with some friends and um, wasn't home when he called. Uh, when I, when I, I want to, I want to talk about that for a moment. You, what th- this level of control is unfathomable to me. Um, I'm a controlling person and I wouldn't think in a million years to go that, that seems like a thousand miles further than I would go. I, I want to like talk about that for a moment. So your, your dad is so controlling that he's calling you every day to make sure you're up and to make sure you're back in your dorm by 10 o'clock so that you are essentially just doing what you have to do and you, you're not really having the college experience. Right. Um, that kind of control, as you're hinting at, is, is very visible in other places in your life. Um, what are your thoughts as that's going on? Are you, I mean, there has to be some resentment, but, but it also sounds like you also did it. Yeah, there, there, obviously there was some resentment. I, I, I wanted to be my own person. I wanted to experience life. You know, in high school, I never dated, partly because nobody asked me, and partly because my dad was so controlling that there was no way that I could. Um, and so going to college, I thought, in my mind, I was going to be free, free to be able to to go be with friends and stay out late and, and just have fun. And, and there, there, it just wasn't that way. And part of me resented the fact that I couldn't do that. You know, I didn't dare uh, because if I did, I would disappoint my dad and that would mean that he didn't love me. So, so there's, so me in your situation, I would be, if, if my mom or my dad did that, I would, start off soft. Like, Hey mom, like we got to knock this off. Like I'm an adult now. I I get it. I'm young. I'm going to make some mistakes, but I'm out in the real world here and you got to back off. But that's unfathomable to you. It seems like that's not even on the table of options. There, there might've been some conversations with my mom about, about the situation, but there again, she, she didn't have any control either. And so there was only so far she could go. Um, and there was this part of me that if I, I knew that if I said something to my mom and she said something to my dad, he would know that I had said something to her and we would both be in trouble. And so I, I just knew that I couldn't. Um, um, so 
I'm going to ask this, and I assume the answer is no, because it feels like the answer is no, but it leads to something else. So your home, there there wasn't any physical abuse, was there? Uh, there were. There was. Um, there were a couple of times where my dad, um, I got the belt, and you know he would take off his belt and, and spank me. Um, but that happened less as I got older. Uh, there were a couple of times where my older brother and my dad got in some physical altercations, um, there were, there was one time I remember when I was probably 13 or 14, my brother said something to either a friend or a teacher at school and, um, child protective services got called. And I, I just remember the, the panic that, you know, my dad felt and, uh, and none of us kids knew, you know, we knew that if we said anything, life was going to be over in one way or another. So we just, you know, we, we, we were good. We were good. Right. So you get to this, and, and, and I'll just speak to that for a second. So very similar. My parents, and again, my relationship with my parents, very different, but my parents also used a belt or a paddle as discipline. And as I got older, that went down. And I had some physical altercations with my mom or my dad, um, just as teenagers butting heads with my parents. And as I go into being a parent, I carry some of that with me. I start off being very disciplined when my kids are younger, um, where I'm spanking. And by the time they're, you know, eight years old, 10 years old, I just, it just stops. Like I can't, it just doesn't make any sense to do that. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not having the effect. And I realize like, I'm not really doing it out of a desire t- for them to be better. It's my way of like casting off my anger at them having made a mistake. Mm-hmm. Right. <clears throat> so I, I can, understand i can empathize with that behavior but as you get older you say like hey that that went away like we no longer had this threat of physical abuse over us so now you're back at college there's not really anything he can do so it's not like you're living in fear of discipline you're living in fear as you say of not being good enough and that's still with you even as you're in college to the point where it paralyzes you from living your life and doing anything that he's going to be disappointed in. Yes. Um, man, I'm, I'm just, I'm just trying to wrap my head. Are, are you thinking about, and again, I don't want to just sit here and hammer this point to death. Are you <laughs> sitting here and just thinking about like, like, man, I need to tell my dad to back off, but I don't know how to do it. Or, or is it like, yes, sir? No, sir. I, I, there was a little bit of both. Um, there were a couple of times where I remember just thinking he, he can't, he can't do anything. He's, you know, 2000 miles away. What could he do? Um, but then there's, there's also the other part of me that's, well, he can't physically hurt me, but he can withhold his love from me and he can yell at me. And, you know, those things, those two things were enough to make me do what he wanted me to do. But isn't he kind of doing those anyway? And again, I, I get it. You're you're a young adult. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to make you feel like, oh, I should have done something different. Right. I, I'm just trying to get at like the mechanisms we have and why we have them and, and why we cope the way we cope as human beings. It, isn't he already withholding his love? And isn't he already, in a sense, whether he raises his voice or not, isn't he already yelling? He is. And and. I could feel that, but to have him actually say it was different. Does that make sense? I, 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 I knew that, but to have him, to have him yell at me on the phone and to have him not say that he loved me though, to, to not have those things verbalized, you know, that was enough. 
yeah, I just, I know you today and, uh, yeah, I, I'm just, I'm, ex, I'm ex, again, excited, I guess, in some ways to, to hear this transformation and some of it, you know, we've been close enough for the last year to kind of, you see some of my shadows and growth and I see right. some of your shadows and growth. And I, I just don't think you would tolerate, um, <laughs> that level of control today. So, um, it's been a process. Yeah. Yeah. And it is. And yeah, I mean, we're all, uh, we're all fluid and we're moving and we develop and we change and we tolerate some things and put off others. And then later in life we do the opposite. Um, so you're in college, but you're not having the college experience. You're getting up at six in the morning, which man in college, if someone told me I had to be up at six, <laughs> other than maybe the one day I got classes early, that's just not going to go over good. But, <laughs> but you've got dad telling you that's what's expected for me to tell you I love you. And so you're doing it. You're coming into back yeah. to your dorm room and settling down at 10 o'clock at night. You're not going out late on the weekends. You're not doing the college thing. Um, walk us through now the college experience, knowing that you're in some ways living shy of what you really want to be doing. So it, it was hard. Um, I didn't really enjoy going to college. And then um, soon after I started, you know, email was brand new back then. It hadn't been around for very long. And so there was this missionary who had served in Pennsylvania who would, I'd seen at the branch a couple of times. Um, but my mom, he had emailed my mom and um, my mom told him I was going to school at Weber, which is where he ended up being going, where he ended up going to school. And my mom I can't remember the exact details, but somehow we got connected. So this this missionary, this former missionary from the mission, um, reached out to me, and um, and and now I had a friend that I could talk to or hang out with. And um, I remember talking to my parents on the phone about it, and my dad said that I really needed to to pay attention to this. That he he could. You know, my dad felt like he was the one that I was supposed to marry. Right, which which is this idea that finally somebody comes along that your dad is actually saying, like, you can now do something different, and I give my approval for that. Right, right. And this this was the first person, first boy in particular, who ever paid attention to me. Um, you know, like I said, I wasn't allowed to date in high school. I never got asked out on a date or, or attended any school dances or any of those, any of those things. I, I want to play here for a moment off of the, the sexuality issue in terms of your, you're a lesbian. Um, but I, I, like I, the listeners are wondering, cause most people, when they talk about, when they tell their story and they're LGBT, they they tend to recognize it really early, and it it runs into serious conflict with what their Mormon world is expecting of them, both in their family, in their ward, in their school, etc. And and maybe even to some extent, again, the culture at large, where these this issue still playing it out. You know, you and I are about the same age, and the '80s certainly were not uh, LGBT no. friendly, right? No, and, and so. Your story seems different in that your life was so controlled and you were so, and I don't, maybe this isn't even the right word, but it seems like what you're pointing at, you seemed so invisible to the world uh, or, or diminished 
you were either invisible or diminished to the point where you're not really wrestling. It feels like, again, I want you to, you know, correct right. me and let's dive back into this, but it feels like you're really not wrestling with your sexuality uh, yet. No, I, because I was terrified of, of the feelings that I had felt when I was younger and because of the things that I had grown up with in my family situation and through church, it, I don't think it even crossed my mind that it could be a possibility. And so I, again, in, in my attempt and my desire to do everything right, that I, there was no way I could have entertained that thought. So that, that again, having listened to a hundred stories, a couple hundred stories at this point of whether it be people writing me or talking face to face or doing a phone call, people who, who this is somewhat their journey too, in terms of being gay or lesbian, transgender, those types of things that make you very different in your sexuality or, or gender, you know, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm always falling short of using the right terms and labels, but in this arena, every story I've heard up until yours is somebody who knew they were gay at age 12. They knew they were gay at age nine and the teenage years are this constant wrestle of not not being able to be who they who they know they are. At what point does it enter your mind? Like, you know what? Maybe, maybe I'm a lesbian. Maybe I like girls, and it doesn't even seem like we've even gotten anywhere close to that yet. So, you know, I what, the few friends that I did have, they were always female, and I would become in some cases, really attached. You know, I had a, a really good friend in junior high school who I just loved. I loved, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't label that as um, being lesbian. I just thought I, I was strongly attached to her. And looking back now, there were, there were a couple of times where I had a friend like that, where, you know, I would move and I would just I would cry and I just feel so sad that I was away from her and I just thought we were best friends and that's how best friends, you know, that's the relationship that they had. Um, and so it wasn't until probably, I don't know, I'd say two years ago that I started to just evaluate things. Um, you know, I, I never had a healthy example of what a marriage should look like. My parents, I remember a couple of times where they thought about sex. And so I just thought in my own marriage, you know, fast forward, I'd been married 19 years to the, to the return missionary. Um, again, to just check the boxes. He fit all the, all the criteria. He returned missionary active in the church, getting an education, treated me very, very nicely and, and, and well. But I just thought sex was, sex wasn't supposed to be that great. And so it wasn't until one, I was introduced to a, a lesbian through a coaching group that I started to really, uh, you know, I saw her and her partner interact and I saw the love and the care that they had for each other. And I started to just think about that and think about, is that how relationships are supposed to be? And why don't I have that in my own relationship? I always struggled with feeling attracted to my husband, but I thought it was just me. I just thought, you know, I'm, I'm, there's something wrong with me. I'm not good enough. I'm not doing it right. I need to try harder. I need to fix something. And it, it wasn't until I started to just like, maybe, you know, one, I had always been taught that being gay was bad. And so here's this person that 
I became really good friends with through the coaching group that was the kindest person, one of the kindest people I'd ever met. And so how could she be bad? How could she, how could she be evil? And, um, how could, how could someone else tell her that who she loved was wrong? Because I saw them interact and it was so tender and so sweet. And so I just started to give space and it took a couple of years of just constantly thinking, you know, this coaching group that I was a part of, um, we would meet once a month and just interacting with her and other people. You know, I, I saw other people within the coaching group who weren't gay or lesbian and they, they interacted with her and treated her as if there was nothing wrong with her, you know? And so just giving space and, and it was, it was hard. Yeah. Um, as you're saying all that, I know that depending on which segment of our audience, they're, they're both telling themselves a story in their head. And as you shared all of that, which I want to, I want to dive into and kind of walk through each stage of how that all unfolded, you're going to have the more orthodox believer who maybe this episode was shared with them so that they might have understanding. And they're going to hear what you just said over the last five minutes. And they're going to say to themselves, like, see, if she only had a healthy relationship, <laughs> then she would still be um, heterosexual, right? And and anybody who understands the journey is thinking like, wow, how beautiful to finally start to see that you can be who you are safely. So I want to walk through that. So let's back up. Um, and this is me being somewhat crass and funny, okay. um, but also connecting a dot to you being very different. And, and I th- and I want to explore that, which is that when I was 12 years old, I wanted to have sex with everything. And I was <laughs> not allowed to have sex with anything. Uh, um, but, but well, I, I shouldn't say that. I could have sex with myself, right? <laughs> but, but I couldn't have sex with anybody. And I wanted to have sex with everyone. Um, as a 12-year-old, my hormones were raging. And everything, everything in my 12-year-old experience was, um, was somehow connected to my sexuality. And... Um, and I think most most of the people I knew, all the you know the kids I knew, the boys I knew, that was on their minds too. Um, and I know that to some extent we like to distinguish between males and females, and men are just much more you know sexually focused. And but I think some of that is not true. I think that's not always the case. And I and I I get these things are not um, it's not fair to say we all should feel this or none of us should feel that. So I want to go back though, and I want to say, my life and those around me seemed very sexually focused. And you have this experience with this eleven, twelve-year-old where you're allowed to, you permit yourself to experiment a little. Mm-hmm. And let's let's assume, you know, again, I don't need you to go in detail. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not some bishop that Sam Young's trying to <laughs> stop from having interviews. So I don't need to know the specifics. But I assume there's some touching. I assume there's some kissing. Yeah. I assume there's mm-hmm. some tenderness mm-hmm. um, that had to have as you pointed out, you indicated that was, that was really positive in how it felt. Yeah. Um, what, what stops you from breaking open and saying like, there's some sexuality in my world and this is what I like. And, and it's, it's, and again, I understand the pressure that you're getting from your home and from your church. Um, but what, what stops you from breaking open and saying like, Oh, this is who I am. Fear, you know, I, I, 
desperately wanted to belong and I wanted to be accepted and have friends. And so the fear of if I, if I try and bridge that gap, I might possibly get rejected. And then if I get rejected, I'm not going to have a friend. And so, um, and part of that too was, you know, I didn't learn about sex from my parents. Um, I learned about sex from my friends who oftentimes didn't have accurate information and the the few friends that I had were all heterosexual. And so just, again, my desire to fit in and, and belong, I just went along with what they said and what with what they thought because it was safe. And, and so as you form these other friendships where you're like, I'm really attached to these, these women, I'm really attached mm-hmm. to these kids that are my age, um, but, but it doesn't seem to have any... You know, there's, there's always a little bit of curiosity. Um, there's, there's one friend that my parents would let me spend the night with because she lived in my ward. And, um, I, there were, there were three of us that would get together every now and then and and have a sleepover at my one friend's house. And, you know, they, my two other friends were a little bit, um, bigger breasted than I was. And so, you know, it would be, they would take off their shirt and we would look at each other, um, but there wasn't ever any ever, you know, touching or, or anything beyond that. Um, and, and I liked that, but I just thought that was what everybody else did. I didn't, didn't know that, you know, those kinds of things were outside of that, my little group. Right. So they're, you know, we're all taking our tops off. They look at mine. I look at theirs. So mm-hmm. the interest must be just mutual. Yeah. Like that must be just what women and boys do is mm -hmm. be at least interested. Mm -hmm. At least that's how I explained it to myself. That's how I made it make sense to me. So now let's fast. Oh, let me ask one more thing. The, the, the young lady that you're 11 and 12 and you're experimenting with, um, and we can follow up with this later in the story, but I'm curious if you have ever made an attempt to find her, um, just, just to see if, if she had kind of had a journey like yours where maybe she was a lesbian um, and trying to kind of figure things out any, was there any follow-up ever trying to to find that person again? No. And part of it is because I can't remember her last name and, um, and, and that's as far as it's gotten. Um, Her family was not religious. They were, they were not Mormons. And so I, her journey could be very different than mine, but there's there's not been any attempt on my part to try and find her. Gotcha. Um, so now fast forward, this return missionary, your dad gives approval. This is the first uh, guy, but I want to even say just like human being who's paying sincere attention to you mm-hmm. um, and, and interested in you and all that comes with that. Uh, maybe walk us through the the dating the courtship and what that turns into. So I tend to be a little bit competitive. And, um, so this, this young man, um, the first time, I didn't know that about you, by the way. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I know. I know. Um, anyway, he, we had gotten together with another friend. Um, this guy had moved from Pennsylvania to Utah. He was waiting for a sister missionary to get off of her mission. They had met while she was on her mission. Anyway, the three of us get together. And I remember um, we had gone to Walmart. Yeah. I don't think it matters to the story. Okay. So the the return missionary, he was, 
I remember our first kind of experience together. He was telling this other friend and I that he had just gotten dumped by a girl. And I remember he was like really sad about it. And it just, I was, I couldn't understand. I was thinking, just get over it. Um, but he, he continued to, to call me. And what was interesting is that when he would call, he would say things like, um, Hey, a group of friends and I are going to get together. Um, we're going to go do, you know, we're going to go to haunted house or, or to the movies or something. Do you want to come? And I, you know, sure, that'd be great. And I would go and he, he would have a date and all of his other friends would have a date and I'd kind of be the third wheel. And it started to bug me enough that my competitive side started to take over a little bit. And so it became a, a competition, almost a game. And I hate to say that because it, it sounds, it sounds bad. It doesn't sound like I, I really, I wasn't trying to toy with someone's emotions. It, it just, my competitive side took over and I wanted to see if I could get him to pay attention to me, if that makes sense. And so, um, you know, I started flirting with him and, um, started emailing him because this was before the days of cell phones. So text messaging wasn't a thing, but in instant messaging, you know, chatting, chatting was a thing. And so I, I'd go to the computer lab and, I'd instant message him and he'd be at home and he'd instant message back. And so we just started chatting and, and then we started, um, becoming more involved and, and he would actually ask me out on a date. And so our, it, it moved fairly fast, which is typical of, um, you know, the Mormon world. I was 18 and, and, uh, that was just the thing to do. You know, you, you're young, you get married and then you have babies yeah, Mormonism benefits by having its membership marry very early, very fast, and have lots of children. And so that's the messaging that it gives, and mm-hmm. you were simply doing what you had been taught to do. Yep. And, and and not only that, there was some pressure from my parents. You know, they they knew this return missionary and they both liked him. And, you know, as as I said before, my dad had it revealed to him that that we would get married. And so there there was lots of different factors that played a role into that. And I don't pressure a prophecy and I don't, I don't want to discount, you know, he, I I loved him as best as I could and he loved me as best as he could. Um, but we, we dated uh, a couple of months and then shortly after that we were engaged and, um, we had planned on getting married within a couple of months after getting engaged. Uh, but my brother was still on his mission and wanted to be there for the wedding and his, older brother had just gotten married and his parents uh, didn't want us getting married so quickly. And so we, we waited six months after getting engaged before we got married. Um, I had just turned 19. He was 22 and, um, you know, got married in the temple and which one bountiful temple, the bountiful temple. So for mm-hmm. all the listeners out there who got married in the bountiful temple, they're, they're relating to, <laughs> their experience that day. So, um, Hmm. Uh, did, did you mean uh, there's, so there's a lot to unpack here, which is that, uh, is there, is there an attraction or is it just the idea that like, this is what I'm supposed to do. And here's this person who, um, seems good, seems like a good Mm -hmm. person. And this person seems to value me. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think, I think, what was it? Emma Smith said something about Joseph where she said, you know, 
he was just as good as anybody else. And, you know, it, it was almost like, you know, I could pick from anyone, but here's a, here's a guy just as good as any of the others. Um, and I don't mean this to diminish him uh, in terms of, of who you marry. I'm, I'm trying to essentially pull apart what level of attraction, what level of love, what level mm-hmm. of finally feeling valued all plays into this. Um, I think that that you know there was there was definitely um, an attraction to something new, if that makes sense. It it, it wasn't. Um, he was he was a kind person. He was loving. He paid attention to me, and so I was attracted to that. Um, we, we would make out, you know, like every newly, I don't know, involved couple would, but I, to me, it almost felt like I had to play the part to keep him interested. And, um, it, I, I didn't enjoy it much. Um, there, it just felt awkward and it felt, um, it just, it just didn't feel normal to me. And I thought, again, that was me, that, that there was something wrong with me, but I didn't know what. And so I just, I, I would tell myself, this is just what I have to do. And this is just the way it has to be. And so that's, that's what it became. Yeah. I, I find that intriguing because it, it, it again goes back to your, your life in some ways was so controlled that there really isn't any other space to play in than the one you're playing in. So, um, so, so maybe walk us through from there. So the two of you, you get married in the Bountiful Temple. Yep. You're doing the Mormon thing, right? You're both active in the church. Yep. Um, so you get up every Sunday, you go there for three hours. That, that takes up a large part of your life. And it almost, in some ways, allows you... Uh, and I, I want to make sure I put these in the right words because I think this is for all of us who do the Mormon thing. Mormonism takes up so much time and energy, it almost allows us to not wrestle with these other things in our life, these relationships, because so much of our attention is put on what we're doing for the church. Yep. Um, maybe walk us through the early marriage and... Uh, what some of the things are that you're dealing with as a couple and maybe how the church is both helping if it's helping and hurting if it's hurting um, this relationship early on. Yeah, so we, we got married. Um, we lived in Ogden. Um, I I quit school just before we got married so that I could work. Um, I was pretty much paying for the wedding myself. Um, you know, my husband's family had helped. And so I was, I was working, uh, we weren't married very long before I got pregnant, uh, with, with our first child. Um, I think we'd been married five months and, um, I had been taking birth control and, you know, my, my father was very upset about me taking birth control. Um, but we didn't want to have kids right away, ended up getting pregnant anyway, and uh, had had our first child. My husband was going to school at the time. Um, shortly after our first was born, I started back up to school. And uh, so both of us are working. We're both going to school. We've got this this baby. My parents are still living in Pennsylvania, and there's there's an intense pressure from them, as well as this 
this responsibility that I've placed on myself to, to help them with their financial problems. And so, you know, my then husband and I were sending money back to Pennsylvania to try and help my parents and still trying to manage our own little family. And, and luckily, um, my then husband, his, his parents were well established. And so to pay for school, we would, we would borrow money from them to pay for the semester. And then we'd work to pay it back so that by the next semester we'd have some money to borrow. And, uh, then we ended up getting grants to to go to school. And so we had one child. Um, I was in the middle of nursing school when I got pregnant with, with our second. And um, we're just trying to exist. Um, very early on in our marriage, I think we'd been married about three months and we both looked at each other and we were, we were like, what, what have we done? Uh, can we make this work? We just, Differences of personalities. Um, there were a lot of factors from my family that played a role in our marriage. They were very involved in a lot of things. Um, and so it, it made things difficult. And yeah. as, as we, you know, continued to progress in our marriage, by the time we had our third child, um, I, I suffered postpartum depression and, um, there, there were a lot of things that we would fight about and I would say things like you deserve someone better. I can't be what you want me to be. Not really knowing deep down, not really giving space to acknowledging why I couldn't be what he needed me to be. Um, again, because, because I, I didn't, I didn't dare look at that. Right. Right. Um, so I want to, so your parents are financially strapped and mm-hmm. you feel pressure to to help them. Yeah. Both because on some level like as a good Mormon it's the right thing to do, right? Mm-hmm. Like Yeah, you go to your family first and then the church for help. Right. So your parents are they're they're coming to you and they're asking for assistance or are they just kind of like hinting at it like man, we're we're really having a hard time. Both. Um, is it is it dire- okay, so direct and indirect. Mhm. Okay, so that's that's one thing I wanted to kind of just ask, just to kind of settle that part of the conversation. But as you jump into this marriage, you indicate like just a f- like months in, we're looking at each other. Was it three months or was it three years? You said yeah, you're about th- it was it was like three months. So three months in, you're looking at each other like, wow, are we in over our head? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I want to talk a moment about that, which is, would you so? Uh, I, I re- so the reason I'm stammering is because I want to ask the question was, are you happy? And people are going to say, duh, three months in, they're looking at each other and you know, it seems like it's not working, but I don't think it's that simple. Um, because my guess is this, this marriage, whatever it looked like was still a hundredfold better than what you had back at your house at home with your parents. Absolutely. And the thought of getting divorced, you know, was unheard of, you know, not only in the church, but within my family that was, that was, you just didn't do that. Did you, did you sense, did you sense like, okay, I'm married and this looks way better Mm -hmm. than what I had back at my home. So this, this must be good, even if it's not good. Yeah. And I've got to figure out how to make it work. Right. Um, and, and again, there's a lot to unpack there, which, so, and again, I, I don't mean any so I, I know who your ex-husband is. I'm, we, we can say as much or as little as you want, but um, 
I too think he's a good guy. I think he's a, a, a good human being. And uh, like all of us, we all have our flaws and weaknesses and shadows and things. And so as we have this conversation, again, it reflects in some ways kind of on your parents when we talked about your parents, but we also recognize like, wait a minute, there's there's a life experience and they bring the things that their parents gave them as far as tools and mechanisms and and, and the same thing with your ex-husband, same thing with you, same thing with me. So I don't mean in these conversations to be demeaning towards anybody. Right. And yet it's natural. It's natural as we hear these conversations, if we're the other person being talked about, it feels like like I did something wrong, I'm broken. And I don't mean that in any way towards him. And I hope the listeners gather that because I think we right. should have the utmost amount of compassion for everybody in, in your story, everybody in our stories. Right. Because life... Life isn't uh, millions and millions and millions of years of evolution still have human beings being a train wreck. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not as simple as, as just a few words. You know, there's, right. there's so no. much that goes into the story for yeah. both people. So you're not attracted. You, you, it feels like you sense, like, I'm not attracted to this guy, mm-hmm. but, but he's a good human being. And so this, this is as good as we're going to get. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I, I, my mind keeps going back to the fact that the bar had been set so low that you're above that bar. And, and so on some level, you're like, wow, this is way better than home. And then also on some level, you seem to recognize like, but it's not happiness. It's really not, it's not, I'm not content. Something's wrong here. Right. And, and, and I would just always be searching for the next thing. Does that make sense? So I, I went to school, I got done with school and, um, then it was get a job. And even, even then it just felt like there, there, I felt like there was something missing within myself. So, um, I started doing self-improvement things. I, I did coaching classes. I did, you know, seminars and, um, I did I went to counseling. It just felt like there was something inside of me that I needed to fix. And that was the, that was the reason why um, I wasn't experiencing happiness. And, and it's not that my whole life was miserable. There were, there were, there were lots of times when, when I was happy, but I just felt incomplete or that something was missing. And so I was constantly searching for the next thing um, after finishing nursing school and working at various jobs. Um, then I went back to school again and got my nurse practitioner. And so, like I said, it just felt like there was, there was something else I needed to do. In, in the education arena, had you always been chasing something in the, in the medical field or was that something too, that you kind of changed your focus focus a bunch of times or a few times or maybe speak to that for just a moment um when i initially started going to school i wasn't sure what i wanted to do and then after i took a break after our first um i still was toying with you know what do i do i loved science and so when i started back up to school my goal was to be a biology teacher and um, there was an experience that happened with with my grandpa um he had had a stroke. And then a few years after his stroke, he had fallen and broken his hip. And because of his stroke, he lost his ability to speak. And uh, I went to visit him at the hospital and he was just treated poorly by one of his nurses. 
so poorly that I just, I just, you know, it was then that I thought nobody should ever have to be treated this way. And that's what I need to do. I need to be a nurse and, and make sure that people are treated the way that they deserve to be treated. And, uh, I, Weber State, that's where, that's where I went to school. It was close. And so that was kind of where I felt like my only option was. And I had heard that they had a good nursing program. And so I, I went in to talk to the admissions counselor about getting into the nursing program and, he looked at my my grades and my transcript and pretty much laughed at me and said, "There's no way I would get into nursing program into the nursing program." Uh, it tends to be a pretty competitive program at Weber State. Uh, they, you know, when I went to school, then they received uh, I think over 400 applicants and they only took 80 students. And so the likelihood of me getting into the nursing program was pretty slim. But I decided to try anyway. Uh, so they, they had Weber State and then they had a technical college with like a satellite nursing program called um, the DATC. And you could apply to both. And uh, I figured, why not? What was the worst that could happen? They could say no and I'd be put on the waiting list. So I, I applied and I received my rejection letter from the DATC first and was pretty certain that I wasn't getting into the nursing program. And about two weeks later, I got a letter from Weber State and they had accepted me. I, you know, then I explained it as an answer to prayer. You know, I, I, I had fasted, I'd prayed, I'd gone to the temple, I'd done all of those things. And so that was why I got into the nursing program. And so started nursing school. Um, I had a miscarriage at the beginning of that that first year of nursing school, my parents also went through their divorce that first year and it was very traumatic, uh, very, very difficult. And somehow, somehow, partly because I'm a very determined person and partly because I needed, I needed to succeed because then it meant I had value in the world. It meant, it meant I was important. And so I, I passed my first year. Um, I had the option of getting my, my license is a licensed practical nurse and I took the exam and passed it and, um, worked as an LPN that summer and started the next year of nursing school that fall. That was in, so I started nursing school in 2003 or 2002 and my parents got divorced in 2003 and, uh, I graduated with my RN in 2004. Yeah, and it's interesting to hear some of that. Some of that, some of the stuff that we're going through are things I didn't didn't know as I've gotten to know you. And it's it's interesting to hear you overcome odds at various points in your life because that's that's the Mikel I know uh, is somebody who is determined. And uh, you, if you try to get in her way and slow her down, she'll just figure out, <laughs> I'll figure out how, to sh- how to how to push you off to the side and still accomplish what she's trying to do. So. I love hearing all that. Um, so you talk about your parents' divorce and, and how traumatic that was. Um, but you had to have known the whole time that this marriage really wasn't working. Even, right. even though we all, as, as children of people, we, we want those people to make it. We want those mm-hmm. marriages to last forever. Mm-hmm. Um, but you had to have sensed that it, it was toxic. And whether it lasted or it didn't, it certainly wasn't healthy. Right. Right. It, in some ways it was a relief and it was, it was, you know, I had the thought of it's about time. 
Um, but it was still, it was still difficult. Um, like I said, there was, there was a lot of ugliness that came as a result of that. So from there, I mean, you've got your own marriage, you're helping your parents financially. Now they've got this divorce. You're finally kind of making your way through the world where you're establishing like, Oh, here, I've got this education. I've been determined. I've pushed forward. I've got this done. So now I can, I can be on, on some level, a provider for myself, for my Mm -hmm. family. Mm -hmm. Um, as you get out of school and you begin to operate within a career, um, and, and again, I don't mean this as a as a any kind of thing that needs commentary, but it's it's a career where um, you're certainly providing a decent living for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not a ten dollar an hour job, right? It's not an eight dollar an hour job, right? So as you begin to be able to provide for your family, uh, your husband works, I assume he provides right. as well. So I don't, mm-hmm. I don't mean this, I don't want the listener to think like he's at home and you're working. It's, it's a mutually um, both working to better the, the home situation. Right. Um, I want to talk for a moment about church, which is you talk about having moving from one thing to the other, trying to f- get fulfillment, trying to find yourself. Uh, does church play a role in this? Because I, for me, callings in Mormonism was the greatest thing in the world. Like you could serve in something, it'd be new. You could accomplish something, make a difference in some lives. In a year or two, you got bored. In a year or two, the system also is set up to release you mm-hmm. and to call you to something else. So now you get to have this new thing. How did how did Mormonism and callings play into your uh, constant searching for fulfillment? Uh, so I was often called to uh, one of three callings, and I think that's pretty typical for Mormon women. I was called to primary, which I loved because it gave me an opportunity to, you know, influence kids. And um, in my patriarchal blessing, it said that I would be a great influence on the youth of the church. And so I was often called to young women's and um the other calling that I w- was often called to was Relief Society. I was a Relief Society teacher, and there was some sense of pride in 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 you know being a Relief Society teacher and in young women's because um, it just I was a really good teacher, and so people loved my lessons. Uh, the youth loved having me um, be a part of be a part of their program and. Um, it did. It gave me. It gave me a sense of purpose, and it helped me fulfill a, a duty, and it helped me feel like I was accomplishing something because I was influencing people for good. Were you like me in that? You know, a year after having that calling, you started to get bored, and you're like, "Okay, I hope they release me soon. Yes. Call me to something." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I think. I. I don't know that everybody feels that, but I think a chunk of us feel that. And. The church system seems set up almost to recognize it and to never have it get to the point where you almost have to vocalize it because it, it the system seems to almost gather that that's happening and release people at those intervals where we begin to get bored and burned out. Right. Um, you mentioned these three areas. They really are the only three areas that a woman gets called into, right? Well, aside from nursery. Right. Besides nursery. And and I'll just be honest, I hate children. <laughs> you know this about me, but I hate children. So, I mean, I, I don't hate my kids and I don't, I don't hate your kids, but I hate children <laughs> in general. Right. And, um, 
and so I was always in these these leadership positions and never served in primary, never served in nursery. Well, never. You're a man, right? And and I was a man who um, showed up in mm-hmm. in a small ward. You only have to be a man and be a man who shows up, right. and you get to be in the top leadership of the church. Right. It's it's an automatic, right? Um, and so, in some ways, it's definitely a very privileged position. But I, but like you, I loved teaching. I loved being in front of a room of people and having a chance to influence uh, them and to share my insights as if, as if I, you know, in this great wise person who has all these incredible things to share, and people should sit at my feet and listen to these. Um, so I loved teaching, and I and I loved the the praise and uh, appreciation that came from board members for that. Right. There was one time, Bill, I just have to share this because it's kind of funny. Um, I was supposed to teach Relief Society. So I'm sitting in church and I thought it was somebody else's turn. And the other gal turns to me and she's like, you're, I can't wait for your lesson. And I was like, what? I'm supposed to teach? I thought it was your turn. And she's, no, it's your turn. So I immediately left Sunday school, ran home, threw together a couple of things and then showed up for, you know, in time for Relief Society, literally had maybe 20 minutes to, to throw it all together. And there's this expectation in Relief Society that's oftentimes unspoken that, you know, you've got to have the handouts and the the little decorations and those kinds of things. And and I I there was this part of me that was panicked that I wasn't going to have something like that to hand out. But I go, I show up to Relief Society, I give this lesson um, I, sh- I, sh- I remember showing a little video and, um, you know, asking a lot of questions. And when I was done, everybody raved about how that was the best lesson they'd ever heard. And I was, it took me 20 minutes to throw this together. What do you think the secret is to the lessons that people really like? Uh, I think that it's asking good questions and allowing them time to think and, and respond. And I think that um, being vulnerable, at least in my experience and from that lesson in particular, me me talking about an experience, a, a story that had meaning and how it impacted me and how it changed me, then gave space for other people to, to evaluate um, their own personal life and how that experience could relate to them. Yeah, the two things you hit on, vulnerability and um, asking questions, and not just questions where we ask, like the traditional questions of... Right, not the questions in me, the manual. Tell me, read scriptures, prayer, right. have family home evening, right? But to be vulnerable and ask questions that allow people to be something different than what we always do. Right. Um, and I, that seems like what you're pointing at, and I agree with you. Like That, that seems, anytime we give people, and I want to specifically say members of the church... Uh, and you and I obviously now have some distance mm-hmm. between our lives and Mormonism, but people I think are begging to to expose what they really are that doesn't fit the mold. Mm-hmm. And and I think good teachers, the ones that are looked at as good teachers, are the ones that allow space for that. So I I, I just want to point that out. Um, all right, so we've talked about callings, church. We talked about some of the early struggles of your marriage. Um, we've talked about your education. We've talked about your parents and, and their struggles. Now I think we get to the point here um, where th- I, I want to start talking about where things fall apart, uh, where you finally, you know, and again, maybe there's other stories that need to be told first, but help us piece now together that you're in this marriage where you're with a good person 
but it's not it's not fulfilling it's not working it's not feeling like it's it's what you're looking for maybe walk us through how that starts to shift and move and fracture yeah so there's one experience um from it happened fairly recently in kind of the grand scheme of things it was probably about five years ago i was talking to my cousin who's close in age to me and she's She's the cousin whose family I lived with the first part of my senior year in high school. And she's married. She's got a couple of kids. And um, we're talking one day, and she's telling me how her and her husband, they shower together every day. Um, they they have sex multiple times a week. And I, I'm thinking to myself, I can't even, I can't even understand that. I can't even picture that. I don't. I'd never, maybe twice showered with my husband, probably the first night that, you know, after we'd gotten married and maybe one other time after that. I don't let him see me get dressed. I don't want to see him get dressed. The only time we're, we're really naked is, is when we're having sex and usually the lights are off then. And I just couldn't even wrap my head around that kind of relationship. And so it just started, started me thinking about, you know, my own relationship and those kinds of things. And then I, like I said, this, this woman that I had met through the coaching group, seeing her interact with her, you know, they're married now, but at the time they weren't married, but seeing her interact with her partner, I just started seeing different relationships and thinking about my own relationship. And, um, about two, Two years ago, two and a half years ago, um, I was going to the gym regularly. It was a way for me to de-stress and kind of cope and and manage the depression that I was experiencing without really understanding why I was feeling so depressed because my life really was good. You know, stable job. We had money, had a house. You know, bills were all paid for. Kids, I, I didn't really want for anything and so in going to the gym, I was going to this class and I, I started to feel some feelings for this instructor that I wasn't quite sure what they were. Um, and, and my, my then husband had said something that just, I, and I can't even remember what he said, but it just started getting me thinking. So I started researching, you know, could I be gay or how do you know if you're gay? And reading everything that I could get my hands on, but still trying to stay within the confines of Mormonism because that's where I was at. Um, and there were a couple of videos that I had watched. In fact, I watched one with, with my ex-husband, um, where it was this couple, a lesbian couple. They had been married and they loved each other. And, um, they had both kind of fallen away from the church, but for some reason they decided they needed to be active in the church again. And because Mormonism and being lesbian and married didn't work, they decided to get divorced. And I, I could not understand that. And so I started asking myself questions about why, why can't people love who they love and why can't they be happy. Don't they deserve that? And I had a conversation with my ex-husband about it and he, you know, he had very different views. His views were that God asks us to do things. And sometimes those are hard things, but in order to, to have his blessings and, and to 
be a part of the church, you have to be obedient. And I, I just couldn't understand that. And I started having conversations with this gal that I had met at the coaching group and hearing parts of her story and how I could see parts of myself in her story. And uh, I had stopped going to church bef- about six months before I came out because I, I just was wrestling so much with church in general, never feeling good enough and never feeling like I I really, truly mattered. You know, it's, it's a lot of surface emotion in the church. And uh, I remember praying a lot and fasting a lot, and I had gone to the temple, and I was trying to read my scriptures and, and feeling worse, and I couldn't understand that. And so there was this point where I, I just kind of sat with, could I be gay and um, I remember praying about that and this feeling washing over me of, of peace and of feeling like I was okay, whether or not I was, but just feeling like I was okay. And um, so I sat with that and kind of wrestled with that for a few weeks. And then, then the feeling of, okay, if, if I'm gay and I come out, then I lose all of my all of my blessings i lose my family my eternal family i lose my my church membership and possibly friends and family and that thought that thought was too much and there was a point where i considered that it would be easier and better for everyone myself included if i if i just did not exist anymore. So I, I contemplated suicide and being a nurse, I'd seen lots of failed suicide attempts. And so I knew not, I knew what not to do. And I knew, I knew at least for me, the best way to make it final. And, uh, I had a plan and I knew when it was, when I was going to do it. And a couple of days before that, I, um, had been talking with, another good friend and she knew that I had been depressed and really, really struggling, but she didn't know why. So she took me out to lunch one day and she just, she just was like, Mikkel, whatever it is, whatever it is, it's okay. And I'll love you no matter what. And so I said, I told her, I said, I think I'm gay. And, and she just sat there and kind of looked surprised and her words were, that's all. That's it. I, I thought it was something more serious than that. And so that took a, a weight off of my shoulders. Her just sitting with me in that space and still, still loving me and still wanting to be my friend. And then, you know, she said, you should tell your husband, you should tell, you should tell him, you should talk about it with him. And, uh, that same day I had come home from lunch and pretty much been in my room crying all day did did the things that I needed to to make sure my kids were fed and taken care of and I got them to bed and later that night I just had been crying all day and I felt so unworthy that I didn't even feel like I deserved to sleep in the bed and my ex-husband 
you know, convinced me that it was okay that I sleep in the bed, that I deserve to sleep in the bed. And then he, he kind of said the same things, like, whatever it is, I just feel like there's something wrong and whatever it is, we'll work through it. We'll figure it out. I just need you to tell me. So I told him, you know, I said, I think, I think I'm gay. And he was quiet for a few minutes. And then he said, I know. And there was this part of me that was really angry. And I said, what do you mean, you know? And he said that he had had it revealed to him a few weeks before. His words were, I had an impression that came to me that said, what would you do if your wife came to you and told you she was gay? And he said he'd been thinking about it that whole time and trying to figure out what he would do. And he didn't know how to approach it. So this was this was last a year ago, September, not that long ago. And initially we felt like we've made it work for 19 years. Our life isn't that bad. How do we how do we make this work? You know, there's a lot of information about mixed orientation marriages from the church. And uh, for for about a month or so, we entertained that idea that we could we could make it work. And and I, I at, at one point, I just I couldn't anymore. I made it. I tried to make it work for 19 years and I wasn't happy. And I knew that he wasn't as happy as he could be. And uh, so we decided that it would be best for us to divorce and navigate, navigate life after that. Yeah. He's, he's a victim in this too, right? right? Like, like we sometimes, so as you share all that, I, I'm sitting over here just cause I'm a, I'm your friend and, and I hear, I hear you tell this story, which I've heard bits and pieces of before of you being suicidal and, uh, how much I value you and value our friendship and, how close, like, like in these stories where this kind of trauma, this kind of feeling like something's wrong and it's never going to be right. And there's no solution. Like whether someone lives or whether someone dies is, is simply the matter of someone gets lucky and has an intervention from a friend and some people don't. Yeah. Um, and, and the fact that, there's this religious system that says, look, we've told a story and getting people to believe this story is so important. It's so important to the upholding of the story. It's so important to the maintaining the authority we have. It's so important in our being vibrant in the world that people become expendable. Um, and I look at all the damage that gets done on all sides. Uh, and then it becomes really personal when, when it's your friend who uh, is on the verge of taking their life. And, and again, he's, I want people to have compassion for all involved. Like your husband was just as much a victim in this system that told him a story and told him that he needed to fit in that story. Right. Um, I want to go back for a moment because I think there's an important thing that we left out that as you were telling that story, I remembered you telling me, which is that your father had reached out to you when, when you and your ex-husband got married 
um, and made it clear that that you were to essentially, when it comes to sexuality, to make sure that you gave your husband whatever he asked of you. Right. Um, do you mind just, just briefly tell that story? Cause I want to ask some questions off of that. Sure. Um, the, the day that we got married, um, my husband and I were getting ready to leave after our wedding reception and my dad just, just grabbed me and pulled me to the side really quick. And, and he said a few things, uh, but what I remember him saying was one thing in particular. And he said, he said, don't ever use sex as a weapon and don't ever refuse your husband. If he asks for it, you give it to him. And, uh, that, that, that was the only thing I had ever heard from my father in regards to sex my whole life. And, and so to have him say that to me, just, it just, it, it was damaging because I knew that I couldn't. I didn't feel like I could. I didn't feel like I could refuse it. And and not that my husband ever demanded it from me at any time. Um, there would be times when it would be months that we wouldn't have sex and he would, he would kindly and gently ask and, and I would just, I'd, I'd give in because I wanted him to be happy and, and I didn't, you know, I knew it was my duty. Yeah. So here you are, you're, you're a lesbian. You don't, you've never really had the chance to wrestle with that. Your father tells you that whenever your husband asks for it, your, your, your responsibility, your job, which makes you, which objectifies you, your job as an object is to give something all the time, right? which, which takes out the humanity and the messiness of marriages and relationships. And, and I get it like from an ego standpoint, um, it would be great. And I would love as an, as just my ego for my wife to say yes, every time I want to have sex. And there's a piece of me, that ego that says, please, like she should, she should say, yes, she should. Every time it's asked, she should give into that. But man, is that unhealthy? Yeah. On both sides for, and again, I'm glad, like I am deeply touched and I hope, I hope at some point, maybe your ex-husband is, he'll listen to this and, and I hope he senses how incredible he is because I wouldn't, I would have tried to have guilted my wife. I've done that before. I've tried to guilt my wife into having sex with me. And it seems like he approached this as healthy as somebody could in a marriage that was destined from the start to not work. Right. Um, so we get to this point where first it's unsaid. Nobody wants to say what it is that you now are beginning to kind of recognize from your friend, just opening up the, the space for you to talk and you going like, Hey, I think I'm gay. Um, and this idea that your husband is ex-husband is now entertaining the idea that maybe my, my wife, maybe she's gay it feels like, as you pointed out, like this idea, like maybe we can work through this, but the only thing that changed is now, now we're, now we're naming it right Right. now. We're, we're putting, um, we're putting it out there and we're, we're confronting it, but it doesn't really change the dynamics of your relationship. Um, you're, you're, and and again, I want to go back to this and I hope I'm not being too personal, but when it comes to intimacy, you talk about like, like, I don't want to see this guy naked. I, yeah. I don't want to, right? Like, like guy's a decent looking guy. I don't care. I don't, this isn't attractive <laughs> to me. Uh, I don't want to be seen naked. I don't want to see naked. Um, and you start hearing these stories of other relationships that are healthy where two people 
deeply want to connect with each other and have these intimate moments. And man, I can only imagine you sensing for the first time, like, oh, that's the way it can be. And and I couldn't have that even if I knew I could have that in this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, that's enough of me rambling. Um, <laughs> Like, like, what do we do with that? Like, so now you decide, like, okay, this isn't working, and this this needs to change, and we're gonna just we're gonna go different ways. Maybe talk about that for a moment. Um, yeah. So we we had talked about getting divorced, and and it was you know late September, and we decided we would try and and stay together and make things work until after the holidays were over. Um, our oldest son was getting ready to go on a mission. And, uh, I just, we wanted things to stay as normal as possible, um, for the sake of the kids and, and we'd done it, you know, like I said, for 19 years. And so we could just do it a little bit longer. Right. And, uh, I, the more I tried to make it work, once I gave it a name and acknowledged my feelings and just sat with things, the harder it became for me to keep making it work because I wanted something different than what I had. And, uh, so I, I'm, you know, there was also this conversation, which was really quite interesting when we were still married, where, where my ex-husband said, you know, you, you go have the experience that you need to have and we can stay married. And maybe if it's not as good as what you think it is, we can stay married. And, um, I, like that just seems so weird to me. Um, but I understand, you know, he, he just, he wanted to make it work and he loved me. Uh, I don't want to say more than I loved him cause I don't want to discount, discount those feelings, but he loved me differently than I loved him. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a heterosexual, right? So on some level, he also has like you're his wife, and he's attracted to you right. in ways that you can't be attracted to him. Right, right. And so he he just was. I think I think that he was secretly hoping that I wouldn't be gay, and that if I had an experience, it would show me that I really wasn't, and that you know we could we could keep being together. And uh, I ended up meeting someone that changed my life, and in such a, a magical, amazing, awesome way that showed me what I had been missing out on for those 20 years. And, uh, and the listener is probably expecting us to go into that, but we are going to do something different, which is uh, because I know the two of you and you're both just uh, the best of friends to me. I thought it would be fun to leave a cliffhanger here. <laughs> And to um, allow us to sit down with that other person and hear her story. Yeah. And then to rejoin and have the two of you sit down with me and we tell how this all ends up. And um, I think it'll be great. And I, and I want to tell you, just like, this is on the record, but I'm, I'm saying it in a way that I would normally say off the record. Um, this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, and I think because of your and I's friendship, it's allowed it's allowed us to be a little more vulnerable in the conversation. And I think the listeners are really going to appreciate um, some of the areas we went into in this. Um, I, I feel like, I feel like we did 
justice to everybody involved while also being honest to the shadows and, and the mechanisms that show up in our lives. Um, I'm just wondering here with a few minutes left, if we've got any other like thing we missed, something we should have covered. Um, I guess for a moment, one thing that came up for me is when you were talking about your ex-husband and him kind of giving you permission, like go, go try that and let's see if it, if it is real. And in some ways, positive, like, like the positive there is the ability to almost kind of set you free. Right. And I think in some ways, I'd love for you to speak to this, but I bet in some ways you almost had to have someone tell you that. I did. I needed, I needed to have permission and, um, I needed, I needed someone else to be okay with it. Um, and, and at the same time, he was okay with it, but he wasn't. You know, there, there was this dichotomy where, where he wanted me to have the experience. But when I did have an experience, it was, it was deeply hurtful to him. Um, and so there's, there's still some conflict around that, um, that time. But I did, I needed him to, to give me the permission that it was okay for me to one, have, have the, the feelings that I was having and to give, give space to that. And then the permission to be able to explore what that looked like, um, safely, if that makes sense within our marriage. And, and, you know, I, like you said, I, I, I don't discount any of my experiences and, and a lot of them were traumatic and, and painful, but I also don't think that I would be where I'm at in my life if I hadn't had the experiences that I've had. They've all taught me something and they've all shaped and helped mold me into the person that I am today. And so, uh, you know, just in, in people listening, I don't want people to feel sad for me. I want them to, to celebrate the, the growth and the progress and to see themselves in those experiences and to know that there's always a way out, that there's always a way out. Beautiful. I'm, I'm actually, I was going to talk more, but I think we'll end it there. Cause I think that that's, that's a great, what you just said was beautiful um, language and articulation for everybody listening to get something from what was said. So, um, to those who are listening, like I hope you've enjoyed this part one of what I hope is a three-part uh, episode, and I hope you've gotten uh, a great chance uh, to get to know my friend Mikkel uh, and how incredible she is and how messy life is, both the specifics of, of hers and the generalities of ours, all of ours. Um, so tune in next time and have a, I hope you'll enjoy getting to know, uh, this wonderful individual that she met and we'll just kind of keep it all a secret until then. <laughs> uh, and we'll let this play out. Um, and so now I'm excited about uh, the next conversation, but Mikkel, thank you so much this morning for spending a few hours with me. And it's always fun when I get to hear your voice and talk with you. And I felt like I got to know you better today and, um, I'm smiling ear to ear. So thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for giving me an opportunity to, to share my story. It means a lot.